Colossians chapter 1. We are continuing our study through this um, small little letter written to this small little church in this small little city of Colossia, this city that ended up fading away from really anything prominent in history, but um, what this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to this brand new church, just like us, what this letter lacks maybe in content, it certainly makes up for, um, or really, rather, maybe what it lacks in size, it makes up for in content. Uh, this tiny little book is profoundly simple and simply profound. It packs a punch. It's quite the rich account of what God was doing in this church. And so, as we've been saying, we're taking the scenic route through Colossians. We're not, you know, on the Audubon here trying to get through it as fast as we can. We're trying to think of this as like the Amalfi Coast in Italy, all right? This is the, the Pacific Coast Highway. I'm trying to think of a road in Florida. This is not the Everglades. This is not I-95, okay? Maybe a ride to the Keys. That's as good as it gets, okay? It's A1A. Yeah, it's A1A. That's it, all right? Um, I-95 is not that beautiful. It's just like a gas station, you know? Instagram that. Um, so that's what we're doing through this letter, man. We're, we want to stop and enjoy all the view of Jesus here in this book. And we certainly find ourselves um, before quite the view this morning in this passage. Um, I feel like, I don't know, I feel like a mountain climber looking up at Yosemite or something. I mean, this is one of, if not the greatest declarations that we have in all of Scripture, regarding the person of Jesus Christ. This incredible unfolding here in Colossians 1 that we find ourselves in, where Paul is being really intentional about what he's going to say to this church about who Jesus is, because there have been some things that have crept into this church, some wrong thinking, some false doctrines, that are leading people to see Jesus for someone that he's not. And they're leading people to believe things about Jesus that aren't true. And so Paul here in Colossians 1, verse 15 through 23, he's going to set the record quite straight, inspired by the Spirit, to give us a beautiful Christology, a Christology. Now, there's a lot of ologies out there. In fact, if you look it up on Wikipedia, I found some, and they're incredible. Um, the ologies you didn't know were ologies, right? I remember the first time I found out that there was such a thing as being a mixologist, it's like, I make mixed drinks. So, like, you're a biologist now, I guess, of mixed drinks. You know, there's all these ologies out there. And ologies, obviously, we mean the study of or the knowledge of. Um, and I would submit to us today that with all of the ologies out there, shout out to our college students that just finished uh, their finals. Okay. Um, sorry to bring up ologies. <laughs> um, but with all the ologies out there, there is no study more valuable and life-changing, that, that has greater implications than the study of the person of Jesus. To know Jesus is to know all that you really could or need to know in this world. And so this morning, we're looking at this section here in Colossians 1, where Paul gives us this great Christology. But many scholars believe this about this section we're going to look at. Again, verses 15 through 23. It can't be proven uh, so much 100% uh, one way or another, but uh, it's highly specula speculated that this section of Scripture 
the way that it's written in its poetic narrative, in, in its layout, it seems to be that this was possibly an early church creed. And there's a couple sections of scripture like that in the New Testament where we might just read it as like a Bible book, but it seems that the, the way in which it's written and recited, it sounds like something the early church would get together and proclaim together. That's what a creed is. A creed is, whether it's the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, we have all these historical creeds, they are declarations that the church recites to proclaim what they believe about God. And they're healthy. They're really good. It's healthy for the church to come together and not be living in the dark about what we believe about life in God. We get together, and the church has done this for centuries, and they recite creeds together. They, they recite these almost poetic hymns, almost, about theology and about Jesus to together declare and articulate who God is and what he's done. And so that's why, uh, in light of that, this is a word, I promise. Uh, my message this morning is entitled, Creedal Christology. Creedal Christology. Um, someone said, what is creedal? It's that which pertains to creeds, okay? Creedal Christology. And so let's do this together. Um, typically, we would have a, um, a, someone in our church come up and read our scripture for us. Uh, but today, because our section of scripture is written in the form of a creed, why don't we all stand up to our feet? And not just in the honor of the reading of God's word, but in the participation of the reading of God's word, uh, let's read together this creedal Christology, this creed in Colossians 1 here. Verses 15 through 23, and let's set the record straight. I'm going to be reading out the New King James Version. If you got something like the message or something, you're going to be all out of whack, all right? Uh, you're be like, that's another Bible. Um, so I'm reading out of the New King James Version. If it helps you, maybe uh, listen. Um, read, cheat, cheat with your neighbor if you have to. Uh, there's an app you could pull out. We live in the 21st century. Pull out the app, all right? Um, but together, uh, I'll try to do my best to set the pace here this morning, all right? Um, let's read this creed here in Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. I'll lead us. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled, and the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Whew, let's pray together. 
Our Father, we are so thankful this morning. It pleased you, God, that all of who you are would dwell in Jesus. We thank you, God, today for the gift of Jesus. And we pray today, Jesus, that you would be the head of this church, that we would tune into what you want to speak to us, and that, Holy Spirit, you would give us ears to hear what you want to teach us about Jesus. And that's what we pray. Holy Spirit, would you make much of Jesus in this time? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have your seat this morning. Got to catch my breath still after that. Public reading is hard. (laughs) Well, if there's one question that you could summarize in regards to what Paul has just answered for us here in this creed, it is the simple question of who was or is Jesus Christ? And I think it's worth noting that this is an important question for all of us to answer. Regardless of our religious persuasion, our, our Christian or not background, you cannot ignore the impact that the person of Jesus Christ has had on the history of the world. Regardless of what you say about him, you cannot and we cannot deny the significance of Jesus on history. Um, In fact, I think one of the greatest explanations of this comes from an author named Gary Brashears and Mark Driscoll. And in their book, Vintage Jesus, they break down the impact of Jesus on history, and they describe it this way. They say, at first glance, Jesus' resume is rather simple. He never traveled more than a few hundred miles from his home. He never held a political office. He never wrote a book. He never married. He never attended college. He never visited a big city. He died both homeless and poor. Yet, Jesus Christ is the most famous person in all of human history. More songs have been sung to him, artwork created of him, and books written about him than anyone else who has ever lived. In fact, Jesus looms so large over human history that we actually measure time by him. Our calendar, year, our calendar rather, is divided into the years before and after his birth, noted as B.C., of course, before Christ, and A.D., Anno Domini, meaning in the year of our Lord. Respectively, no army, nation, or person has changed human history to the degree that Jesus, the homeless man from Nazareth, has. What a great explanation of this truth. There's no question, atheist or not, there's no question on the mark of the significance of Jesus on human history. So I think it is worth all of our due diligence to ask the question, who was this impactful man? Who was this most significant figure in the history of the world? And with there not being any question on his significance, let's also add, there is also no shortage of opinions in regards to this question. And it's actually, I think, one of my favorite conversations to have with people. You know, as a Christian, we can get so caught up in these secondary topics, these secondary you know, questions. Did God choose me or did I choose him? It's like, good luck being the first person to figure that one out, okay? 
Can God make a rock too big he can't lift? You know, we get so far into the, how were you baptized? Were you sprinkled? Were you dunked? You know? And for me, listen, I like to keep it simple. What, is, what makes up who I am as a Christian? It's not even me, it's Jesus. So the best kind of questions that I like to get in, whether it's someone who's a believer or not, here in Boca, you have a lot of people, met a lady at the coffee shop the other day, um, and the common line is, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. And I often like to say, great, me too. And then we get into a great conversation about that. Uh, and with this lady, even the other day at the sea, a little coffee shop around the corner, it turned into this great conversation of, well, tell me what you think about Jesus. And that's what Paul actually encouraged us as Christians to do. Okay, whatever you got to do, just get to Jesus. He's the main event, okay? He's the main topic of conversation. Who was Jesus? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, when I preach Christ and him crucified, what happens is there's a demonstration of God's power in my ministry rather than just persuasiveness from my speech. We got to get to Jesus. And it's one of the best, I think, conversations to have because, listen, again, there's no shortage of opinions on Jesus, The common secular view that you might find, it might even be as simple as this. Well, either first, I don't believe Jesus existed, which many many atheist debaters and and even uh, the the scholars of of the Old and New Testament alike are kind of dumping that argument anymore. There's just too much historic evidence that points to the existence of Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth, who died the way he did at the hands of of the Roman government. And so um, that's not really the big question anymore. But here's a common one. You might hear this, the secular view. You know, I believe Jesus existed, but I just believe Jesus was a good man. It's pretty common. He was a good man. He was not certainly God-man. Maybe the best man who ever lived, but not God. Maybe you've gotten a knock at your door one Saturday morning and you met a Jehovah's Witness. My friend Charles uh, was coming to my old address every week. I moved, not because of him. Um, (laughs) But uh, Charles and I would have some great conversations. And if you were to ask Charles, who was Jesus? Charles would say, Jesus is a created being. He's actually the archangel Michael. Or maybe you get another knock on your door a couple hours later and it's, Uh, like a Jehovah's Witness, but a little bit better dressed, and that's a Mormon. And if you ask a Mormon, who is Jesus? The Mormon might answer, he's not eternal God. He's instead a polygamous man who was the half-brother of Lucifer that became one of many gods. If you ask maybe somebody who follows the New Age religion, if you ask a New Ager, what do you think about Jesus? You'll get a lot of opinions, but many of them will be in consistency with the teachings of Deepak Chopra, who said, I see Christ as a state of consciousness that we can all aspire to. You go to Scientology, you'll hear, he is an implant force upon a thetan about a million years ago. And you, I know, so <laughs> I don't either. So you talk to someone of the religion of Baha'i, and they will tell you Jesus is a manifestation of God, perhaps a prophet of God, but inferior to Muhammad. You speak to a Buddhist, and they would say the answer to that question, Jesus is not God. He's enlightened man, much like an enlightened man, much like the Buddha. A Christian scientist, which we have the Christian Science Church there on Palmetto Park Road, they will quote their founder, Mary Baker Eddy, who said, Jesus Christ is not God. A Hindu. You will find many differing, differing views within Hinduism, but the general answer will be Jesus Christ is not God. 
but he is an enlightened man like Krishna. Or, if he is God, he is one of more than a million gods, so he's not the only God. He's not exclusive and special. And lastly, Islam will teach that Jesus is not God. He is merely a man and that he is a prophet, but he's a prophet who is lesser than the prophet Muhammad. So the next time someone comes to you and says, don't all religions basically teach the same thing? You can say, not about Jesus, they don't. And, and it's true. And again, it's a great place for discussion. How did you come to that conclusion about Jesus? Who was Jesus Christ? And it's worth mentioning that this question is not a modern you know, a, a modern event. It's not something that's, that's exclusive to our day where there's all these perspectives of Jesus. This has been the question of the centuries. Going back even, listen, to Jesus's time, even in Jesus's own day. The Bible teaches this in Matthew 16, that when Jesus came into the area of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? Even Jesus himself was asking the disciples, what's the buzz? What's the word on the street? What's the Twitter sphere saying about me today? What did Kanye tweet today about Jesus? Okay. Who do men say that I am? And they responded. There's a lot of opinions, Jesus. Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And it's interesting because when you study these different characters who are uniquely distinct from the person of Jesus, what you find is they each actually represent maybe a characteristic or a caricature of Jesus. This is what I think Jesus is like. And that's often what we get. We miss the truth by settling for half-truths. And that was the answer in Jesus' day. But notice what Jesus does with his disciples. He presses this question next personally. And he says, but who do you say that I am? He takes this kind of like big hot topic, this hot take, you know. We got a lot of hot takes in our culture today, you know, LeBron or Jordan, you know, who's the, who's the man? You got a lot of these big buzzes and these big hot takes. And Jesus takes the question of his identity and he removes it from a hot take because we can sit around all day long and just philosophize and talk and, 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 and get into these big conversations about topics that we really believe. But oftentimes Jesus will do is go, shh, what do you really believe? about me. Who do you say that I am? He takes this collective cultural hot take and he presses it personal. And of course, their leader, as in the first to speak, Simon rises up and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I love Jesus' answer to this response. Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah. And look at this description that Jesus gives about his answer. He says, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And let me just say that that is what we are after as a church. I'm so sick of my own flesh and blood opinions. I, got, I, I disagree with myself every day, you know? One day I'm here, one day I'm there, one day I think this, next day I'm like, what... What we are in desperate need of is the same thing that Peter experienced, and that is a revelation from God the Father to reveal to us in a fresh and clear way who Jesus is. Amen? Not just flesh and blood. What do you think? Well, what do you think? What do you think? What's the truth? 
Let's let Jesus speak for himself for a second here. Let's open up the opportunity for God to speak into the question of who his son is. And so today, I want to present, as we just saw there in Colossians, I want to present to you the Christian view, the Christian position on who Jesus is. And my prayer is that as I present this to you, I'm not going to argue into believing this, but as I believe this is the truth, I'm just going to present this truth, and I'm going to pray that God opens your eyes to see Jesus. Because if there's any person in this room who believes these things to be truth today, it's not because they were smart enough. I'm here today because I, I made it. I'm a believer because I got to the top. No, you fell to the bottom. Just like every other person in this room. What is a Christian? A Christian is someone who is blind. But God has opened their eyes to see all the wonders of Jesus. That's Christianity. I see Jesus for all that he is. And that's our prayer for every person in this room today. Let's look at what Paul says here. In Colossians 1, we have this creedal Christology answering for us this question, who was Jesus? And this question finds its first answer here in verse 15, and I'll give you the first point that we see here in verse 15. If you're taking notes, write this down. The Bible teaches, number one, that Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. Number one, that Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. Of God, or in the words of the Apostle Paul here in verse 15, he, speaking of Jesus, in the previous verse it talks about the Son of God's love, this is Jesus, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. This word image here in the Greek, it's the word icon, E-I-K-O-N, from which we get our English words Icon. <laughs> and we also get actually a rendition of this is Nikon, cameras, taking photos. Um, the idea here is speaking about Jesus as the image of the invisible God. The idea here about Jesus as an icon, as an image, is that Jesus in the Greek, it means he is the exact copy of what cannot be seen about God. Jesus is the developed photographs of God. When you get out of that red room and you Shake it up and you're seeking to see, Jesus, see God, there's Jesus. He is the exact copy. This is different from the word we see in the Old Testament describing how God created man in his image. This is different. Now, now let's establish this once and for all. God did make man in his image. God created man to mirror God and his characteristics to this world. Not in a perfect way, but in a true and pure way. Much like my son, Judah... He images me in some good ways and some not so good ways, but he does nonetheless. He resembles his father. And we as God's creation were created to resemble and reflect and mirror our father. And we have, through sin, we've missed that in a large way. Um, one author described the, the effects of sin on what's called the, in Latin, the imago Dei, the image of God on humanity. It's like a mo the Mona Lisa with graffiti on it. It's valuable, and it's a work of art, and it's what God calls his poema, his poem, his masterpiece. But there's been some vandalism done to our ability to mirror God, and so more often than not, we mirror the nature and the conditions of the world and the flesh rather than we do God. 
Uh, but God created man in, in a very limited way, but, but in a true way nonetheless to reflect God to this world in a way that's different than every other cre- uh, creature and creation. But, but what, what Paul's saying here about Jesus is not a connection to that. It's not saying Jesus is too. What, what Paul is saying here about Jesus is not just that Jesus was made in the image of God, because we know that Jesus became a man, but that Jesus, he says, is the image of God. Jesus is not just a resembling being in his likeness, but Jesus is the exact imprint of God. That's the way actually Hebrews uses some different language. This is in the ESV. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. What a cool way to say that. By saying that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, What Paul is communicating is this point again, that Jesus shows us God. Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. Now, throughout history, man has been seeking to image God. Or, here's another word, imagine, image, imagine God. We've been seeking to understand what is God like. And so you have, even throughout the Old Testament and, and world history, you have people making Images is what they were called, idol, graven images to be a symbol of this God. This is my calf, it's my God calf, and it images my God. And listen, we might look at them and go, man, them them and their graven images, we do it today like crazy. We have our own versions of what we think God is like. We imagine God to be all sorts of things, even as Christians every day, that he's not. We image God. We're a lot like Judah, my son. Yesterday was... Maddie and Kyle's son, Caden's birthday party. It's his first birthday today. We're so happy for Caden. One year of life. He's awesome. Yesterday was his birthday party, and Judah wanted to make Caden a card. Judah did not know I was teaching this Bible study. I just want to say that, okay? But Judah created this beautiful work of art. And I said, Judah, that's so nice. What is that? And he goes, that's God. All right. And he's learned, you know, I'm not teaching false doctrine at home, I promise you. I, did, I don't believe God is the spaghetti monster in the sky, okay? But, and then Judah gets to the party, goes, happy birthday from God, Caden. Okay? It was so sweet, it was so pure. But listen, I think what's written into the heart of my son is reflective of, of what's written into every one of our hearts. It's this longing to know what God is like. I mean, I really want to know what's he, what is he like. I'm trying to imagine what, is, what, what God is like. And, and the, the difficulty here is what, what Paul says. Jesus is the image of the what? Invisible God. One of the descriptions of God actually to his glory in the Bible. Now to him who alone is wise, immortal, invisible in 1 Timothy. The invisible God. Another word for this is the unknowable. What is God like? I want to envision God. I want to imagine God. I, I want to understand what he looks like. And this gets us into what many have called the most important doctrine, actually, and there's some debate about this, but at least for our sakes, if there's one doctrine that may be the most valuable to us doctrine in all of theology, it's the doctrine of revelation. The best news of the gospel is not just who God is, but that God has made himself known to people like you and me so that we can know who he is. That's good news for us, the doctrine of revelation. 
And the big idea of the doctrine of Revelation, it finds its roots in Christianity, right? There's, there's a big question here, right? The question is this, is there a God, number one? Is there something, someone perfect? Is there something, someone more? Is there something, someone behind all that we see that we can call on and look to? And if there is someone, how can he be known? Or rather, can he be known? And let me give you a summary of some of the responses. Atheism responds to that question and says, is there a God? No. Can he be known? No. Okay. Agnosticism might say, is there a God? Maybe. Can he be known? Then you have what's called deism, which many people don't realize that they are Christians who actually live with deism. Deism says, can there be a God? Yes, but he can't be known. I know there's a God, but I just feel like I don't really know him. Deism, as Al Pacino describes in The Devil's Advocate, God is an absentee landlord. And Christianity declares this truth. There is a God, and he can be known only because he has willed to make himself known. He's willed to reveal himself. This is the doctrine of revelation. This idea that God is so good that he's let us know about that. And so there's a great description of this too in Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. Um, I quote usually Paul, Jesus, and Tim Keller every week, just so you know. It's like my trinity of Bible commentators. Um, uh, Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, he describes this unique occurrence that occurred in the time of C.S. Lewis. Um, in the time of C.S. Lewis, who's probably the greatest Christian thinker, um, at least of the church age, um, but C.S. Lewis, uh, in his time, there was a response that C.S. Lewis gave to this Russian atheist cosmonaut who went up into the atmosphere, went, went up right there into space, and this Russian atheist cosmonaut, he returned from space, and he reported that he didn't find God. I went up there, I looked around, saw the moon, no God. And C.S. Lewis responded to this assertion by this cosmonaut by saying that this type of thinking, he says, first of all, this is a dangerous thinking, okay? This was like thinking that Hamlet, follow me here, could go into the attic of his castle and find Shakespeare, That's what C.S. Lewis said, okay? Um, C.S. Lewis responds and says, if there is a God, he wouldn't be another object in the universe that could be put into a lab and analyzed with empirical methods. I found God. There he is right here. God, 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 okay? All right? He's not like an, uh, an island out in the Pacific that you stumble across. The way that we relate to God is not so much the way that a person in the first story of an apartment <laughs> relates to the person in the second story. <laughs> and as many basketball players will say, the man upstairs, okay? But rather, C.S. Lewis asserts that the way that we relate to God is a lot more like Hamlet to Shakespeare. Hamlet is never going to discover Shakespeare by climbing up into the top of the set. The only way, listen closely now, the only way that Hamlet could ever know anything about Shakespeare is if the author Shakespeare chose to write something about himself into the story. He's the author. He dictates the history. It's his story. And so the only way for this to ever happen would be if 
God would be willing to reveal himself. We, listen, if there is a God, it's only logical to conclude that we are at the mercy of his revelation. The good news, he's revealed himself. The Bible teaches these ideas of God revealing himself certainly in general ways. It's called general revelation. The Bible says even things like creation declare who God is. Psalm 19 says that the stars, the, the universe, the create, it declares the handiwork of God. Just like a painting points to a painter. Design points to a designer. Architecture points to an architect. Music points to a musician. All those things pale in comparison to the complexity of the human body and the universe. When you look at the universe, God has revealed himself because he's written about himself into the story of creation. So that Romans 1 says that we're without excuse. Come on. You're without, come on. You think accident, accidentally amazing, accidentally beautiful, accidentally on Mafi Coast, accidentally Whirlpool Galaxy, the beauty and the complexity of the universe, this has been called the ontological argument or the teleological argument of God, that it, it, it mirrors design. It mirrors designer. But we need more than that. Like yesterday when my day wasn't going so well, I needed more than a sunset. You ever been there? It's like, it's a beautiful sunset. I'm still angry. <laughs> I'll like the photo. But like, come on. Most of my life is like, God, are, who are you? What do you really like? What are you, how are you, how do you feel about me now, God? Who are you? Who, who are you? And so God answers that question with more than just general revelation. And listen, it's through the person of Jesus Christ. He is the special revelation of God. General revelation Special revelation, we have that all throughout the Old Testament, whether it's inspired by the Spirit, visions, or dreams. Jesus, the Bible says in Hebrews 1, that in, in latter times, God has spoken in so many ways. He's revealed himself through prophets, through dreams. But Hebrews 1 says, but in these last days, God has revealed himself through his Son. The Bible says in John chapter 1, that in the beginning was the Word. And the word was with God. And this word that in the beginning spoke all things into being. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth with his word. And in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And then our Bibles read, and the word was God. There was a community going on there at creation. And the Bible goes on to say that this word that was with God and that was God, the good news of the gospel is this word, the communication of who God is, what is he like, this word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt, tabernacled among us, literally. Which on the outside, the tabernacle, it just looks like any old tent, but on the inside, the presence of God. So Jesus is the word made flesh. And the disciples say this. They say about Jesus that though no one has seen God, Jesus, who has been in the bosom of the Father, in relationship with the Father, since the foundations of the world, he has declared him. So that Paul here in this text can say that Jesus is the image, the imprint, the declaration, the sermon about who God is. Jesus. Um, Jesus said this about himself in John 14, 9. 
you, you, you can't ignore this when you read the Bible. It's okay to have your, here's what I think, but to read the scriptures, there's no other conclusion than to say what Jesus said in John 14, 9, when the disciples said, hey, show us the Father. And Jesus says, he who sees me has seen the Father. Now, who else in this room could say that? You want to you see God? Feast your eyes. <laughs> you would think what many people thought about Jesus, and you would do what many people did to Jesus, and that day you would crucify me. He who sees me sees the Father. Jesus has declared the Father. And listen, let's let this be more than just concept and theology. This means if you ever need a refresher, if you ever need a reminder of what God is like, go to the person of Jesus. Look at Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. God has revealed himself through the person of Jesus, so much so that he is the perfect revelation of God. He's the perfect revelation of God. He reveals who God is. The Bible says in Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrated his own love through Jesus. You look at Jesus, you see God. The second thing Paul says, these will have to be a, a bit faster, all right? The second point is that Jesus is the supreme ruler over all creation. So he is the perfect revelation of God. And as the second person of the triune Godhead, as not just the Son of God, but God the Son, Jesus, the exact imprint, the expression of God as God, he is, therefore, the supreme ruler over all creation. Um, it's interesting that this is one of those sections of scriptures that in my conversations with Charles, my Jehovah's Witness friend, this is where we spend most of our time. This section of scripture, ironically, I think it's really unique that this is where a lot of Jehovah Witness theology will go to to proclaim that Jesus is um, a created being. They'll go to here in Colossians, and they'll look at the end of verse 15. What does it say? He's the image of the invisible God, and they'll quote this verse, the firstborn over all creation. So they say, look, it says he was born. He said out of all things that were created, it says that he was firstborn. And you gotta do a little, sometimes you've got to do a little Greek. Every now and then, you've got to break out the Greek, eat a, eat a euro, some hummus, and do some Greek, all right? Okay? This word firstborn, prototokos, prototokos, it can mean all you firstborns in the room. It can mean you. It can mean that. But that's not what it certainly, the context here, the whole rest of the Bible would not support that. This is saying that Jesus is the firstborn, especially when the Bible also calls him the only begotten Son of God. How can you be the first only? So, so the idea here of him being the firstborn, this word prototokos, it can mean chronology and sequence, but it often also in Scripture can mean supremacy and priority, the firstborn. So for example, in Psalm 89, verse 27, God calls David, king of Israel, his prototokos in the Septuagint, his firstborn. You were the firstborn. God called the nation of Israel the firstborn among the nations. Israel was not the firstborn nation. If you read the story of David, David was not the firstborn son. He was the lastborn. He was the neglected sheep boy, okay, that didn't get lined up to get picked for the team. That was David. But God calls him the firstborn because this idea, it doesn't speak to sequence. It speaks to priority. Here's the key phrase about Jesus and creation. He is the firstborn, check it out, 
over all creation. Over all. He's not under creation. He's not a part of creation. Jesus is the supreme ruler of all creation. He is the firstborn over all creation. And Paul begins to unpack this, and I love the way that he does it. He kind of uses the word creation interchangeably with another Greek word. It's this Greek word, pasa, and it's the phrase that you see there like multiple times in this section. It's the phrase, all things, for, for the simple people like me. Sometimes I need God to say, what is Jesus the Lord of? Here's a Greek word. It means everything, okay? All things, pasa. There is nothing, the writer Paul here would say, there is nothing that is not under Jesus. Jesus is the firstborn, and he is above all, above all. Paul breaks this down. Look what he says. He says in verse 16, for by him, what is it? All things, pasa, were created. Now, that's a, by, by the way, I think that's your knockout punch for someone who says, who uses Colossians to say that Jesus was created. How could he, he created all things? How could he create, like, if he, if all things were made through him, how is who made him? If all, all things, doesn't all things mean, does it mean some things? Like, it means all things. So it's pretty clear here that Jesus, look at this, and here's what, what the Bible says about Jesus as the supreme ruler over all creation. The Bible says simply, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible, I love that, visible, what can be seen with the naked eye, and invisible. Right? Everything. From the, from, from the farthest galaxy that we can see to the most microscopic DNA molecule. That which is visible in this room and that which is invisible, there is nothing, the Bible says it here, let's keep it really simple, okay? John's like, here, let's, 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 let's squash this beef. He says, all things are made through him. And then he says it backwards, like Yoda. And without him, nothing that was made that was made. <laughs> I love that. It's like, do you get it? There's nothing. There's nothing outside of the rule of Jesus. As it's been said, he's either Lord of all or he's not Lord of all, or Lord at all. And he is Lord of all. He's the supreme ruler of all creation, whether visible or invisible. He then goes to list even the spiritual realm. These, these beings that have rebelled against God that we sometimes wrongfully make the competition of God. He's like, he created them too. There's nothing outside of his rule. There's nothing outside of his sovereign, supreme authority. Hey, he goes on to say this, not only was everything made by him and through him. Look at this next thing. I love this. And they were all also made, notice this, for him. This is huge. Who made it? Jesus. Why, why was it made? For him. Why were you made? For Jesus. Why was it all created? It was created for Jesus. We were created not to worship and serve creation. We were created by creator as creation to worship and serve Jesus, the creator. That's why we sing, worthy are you alone to receive blessing and honor and power, for you created all things, Revelation 4.11, and it's by your will that we exist and we're created. You're the creator, we're creation, we exist for you. This word for you can also mean, it's interesting, in some translations it might read unto Jesus, unto you. Um, some uh, breakdowns read it as all things were created by Jesus toward Jesus, which is also cool. Like in the posture, we were like, when we, listen, when we are born again and brought back into relationship, God restores us to our proper created posture to worship. Worship, listen, the reason why worship is, is such a, a longing in our hearts, the reason why we, we, we could just sit in the presence of God forever is because you're doing the very thing you were created to do. 
You were created to have a posture of worship toward God. I love my, my good friend Chet Lowe says, even the trees, look at the way trees were, were made. They grow like this. I just love that. All things made for him. And, and let's be sure, the point of this is not just the present. Paul is, Paul is speaking about an eschatological reality, a future event. He's speaking about it in present tense. He says, everything made for him, and you better believe it's all going toward him. In the end, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess the glory of God. It's all going toward him. You know, in the book of Revelation, which speaks of the end of all things, 17 of 22 chapters, on 45 different occasions, John speaks of a throne. It's where everything's moving. Listen, all of history is moving towards a throne. All of history is moving towards, listen, not a democracy, not a monarchy, not even a tyranny, not an autocracy, a theocracy, where the rule and reign of God comes as perfectly to earth as it is in heaven. That's where we're all moving towards. That's what we're praying towards. That's what we're seeking to bring to South Florida. Amen? God, let your rule and reign come in and through our lives to our community. Let your will be done as Jesus taught us to pray. And let your kingdom come in South Florida as it is in heaven. So what this leads us to do is whether I follow an elephant or I follow a donkey, it's all second to the fact that we follow the lamb. We follow Jesus and we're moving towards his throne. Paul also says, in all things, listen, he is before all things. You see that next verse? He's breaking down on Jesus as the ruler. Verse 17, he is before all things. He's using these great prepositions. So Jesus created it all. It's all going to him. It's all for him. And it's all, he says, it's all after him. He is before it all. Now, this speaks, uh, of course, again, of his preeminence. This, uh, this is theology 101, okay? Um, you know, it's good sometimes to be reminded that there's in understanding who God is, it's good to be reminded that there's a lot of things that God is also not that are helpful for our theology. You know, like, we need to understand this simple truth that we forget. Like, there are some things that God can't do. Did you know that? You know, no, God can do everything. No, He can't. You go, that's limiting. No, 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 no. It's, de- it's, de- it's declarative. There are a lot, you know, God can't, here's an example. God can't learn anything new. He's never, God's never said, oh, you know what I just thought of? God's never had to use Google once. That's called the omniscience of God. God, the Bible says, he can't get tired. That's his omnipotence. Okay? God can't be second. It's called his preeminence. He is before all things. Hopefully, that's true for your life. Regardless, he is. He's first. Jesus is before all things. Now, this speaks of his preeminence. Now, if you keep going, um, lastly, it says, and I love this. Look at this great verse. It says, not only is he before all things, but it's in him that all things consist. Some translations read that he holds it all together. This is good news, too. God is the creator, All things made through him, for him. He is before it all. He is the firstborn. But the good news of God is, listen, he's not the absentee landlord that set things into motion, got the wheel moving and said, I'll be right back. Don't mess this thing up. Then he comes back and he's like, what did I do? You know, that's not God. God is the creator and the sustainer of all things. He holds it all together. What a great truth to just go, oh, that's true today. 
when was the last time you had to be reminded that, listen, when everything's falling apart, God still holds it all together? The degree in which everything in this universe right now is actually being held together is the degree that the mercy of God allows. The degree in which everything is held together right now is the degree to which God's grip is on this universe. That's what the Bible teaches, that he holds all things together. Every, every atom, okay, he's that invisible glue. He's holding it all together in his grip. And it's good news for us when maybe our lives don't feel like they're together because most of the time they're not. Next time, I'm looking around at my life and I'm looking in the mirror and I'm like, this is all falling apart. Look to Jesus and say, but thank you, God, that you hold me together. Thank you, God, that all things consist in you and thank you, God, they don't consist in me. Paul is proclaiming gospel truth. Let's move on to another point. That would be wise, okay? Thirdly, we see that Jesus is the only head of his church. So who is Jesus here? Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. Jesus is the supreme ruler over all creation. And then Paul gets to this idea that within creation, his rule and reign that is established as truth, he is before all things, but Jesus is bringing his rule and reign through his church. The church of Jesus Christ is, I've heard one person describe it, we're meant to be like a military outpost in enemy territory. We are the ambassadors of the kingdom of God here to bring the love of God to the world. He, he brings his kingdom through the church. Uh, you remember the encounter Jesus had with Peter? We looked at it. And, and afterwards, Jesus says to Peter, he says, I will build my church. And he says, and here are the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And it's through the church, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the kingdom of God is actually advanced on earth. The rule and reign of God has never been threatened. We've threatened ourselves from living in it. We've rebelled against it. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus has brought together his people throughout Israel. We have today through the church, and we are bringing, the goal is we are bringing the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. We've been brought back, and we looked at that last week. We've been transferred into the kingdom of his love. Um, But the big idea here that that Paul is communicating about the church is the church is Jesus' church. He says, look at the verse. He says in verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He's the head. Um, okay, so the only head, too, is important to say. Um, and the big idea here is that, first of all, the church is Jesus' body. Like, a lot of people, for a lot of pure reasons, have um, run away from the church, and it's gotten to the point to where people have, um, have just rebelled in every way, in love and in grace towards the church altogether, it's really trendy today to not be about the church. Um, and I don't think the church has helped. You know, I hope we help. Um, but one thing is going to stay the same. The church is the body of Jesus. And um, God made his church. He, he willed that the church would exist. And the Bible calls the church the bride of Christ. That's how he feels about the church. And uh, so we need to feel the way about the church, the way that Jesus feels about the church. We need to value the church. We need to value being a part of his family. Yeah, it's messy. And yeah, sometimes you got to leave and find a family that you're not suffering in. That's okay. But sometimes you just got to show grace. Sometimes you got to understand that, listen, this is, this is a messy situation. We don't get it. God decided to put a bunch of messy people into the same family. Look at your family, right, you know? 
to display his grace and his power. It's his church. It's his church. His church. That's it. It's his. Who's in charge here? Jesus. He's the head, right? Because it's his body. So he gets to be the head of his own body. And Jesus doesn't have two heads. If you're here because you want to get, you want to be a head, not going to happen. There's only one head here. You want to come serve? Come on in. But if your goal is to get to the top, we would encourage you to get back to the bottom because Jesus is our example and he's our head. And the head commands the rest of the body. He says stuff like this. He who wants to be first, you should be last. Okay? Because Jesus is first. Who's first here? Jesus. Why, why, do I, why does Andrew get to preach? I, I got here first, I guess. I guess that's the answer. Okay? But No. The goal of this whole thing is to say, Jesus, be at the center. Let us, be, let, it be your, let us be your body. Let us not, by God's grace, be a business. Let us not just be a building. Let us be your body, be our head, and the head gives commands to the rest of the body. We follow you. Um, and it describes Jesus to the church, this great news. Look what it says. He, the head of the church, is the beginning. He's our beginning. We, had a, we came to our end. Jesus gave us a new beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead. I love that. So first, he's the firstborn over all creation. But now Paul's like, he's also the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn who was birthed from the dead, who was dead and was resurrected. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. This speaks of the good news of the gospel is what this is talking about. Um, John Corson, I love the way he said it. Jesus turned the tomb into a womb. I like that. You think about it, why? It's because we went from the womb to the tomb. Because the wages of sin is death. So what did Jesus do? He went to the tomb and made it a womb. And he conquered death. So he's the first, you like that? I like that. So he's the, I didn't come up with it. I didn't come up with it. He's the firstborn from the dead. He turned the tomb into a womb. And so we get to say, Jesus is our head. And we look to Jesus and he says stuff like this. I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, he may live. I'll take that verse. Give me that. I'll have that one. Though you die, you live, because Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. And look what it says, that he may have the preeminence. So he is preeminent, he is first, but the goal of every church, the goal of every community is that Jesus would be first, okay? He is, he is, but our desire here as a church, and would you pray for us, pray for us that as we're even a new church starting out, pray that we would never put anybody else in that place of first that Jesus deserves, that he is, all right? So, and the idea there is if Jesus is first, that certainly means that other things got to come in second, right? We got to purposely put things in second place. Like our Americanness has to be second. It's not first. Our comfort is not first. Our consumer preferences. This isn't the marketplace. This is the church. Jesus is first, okay? So we want to get used to saying things like this, you know? It's like, you ever been in that place where you're holding the door for someone and you're like, you first. And they're like, you first. Like, no, 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 you go. And then it gets, to, then you start to be kind of like angry. Like, no, you go. <laughs> Let me serve, you know? No, you go. Ladies first. You know, and you're like, oh gosh, you know, awesome chauvinist, you know? And you walk in, okay? <laughs> so we want to be as a church, this is not a debate, right? It's just like, Jesus, you first. We get out of the way. We're out of the way. Jesus first. Jesus first. And so that's what we're after. And lastly, let's close with this. I'll invite the worship team to come up as we close out. Paul ends with this good news that Jesus is, and here's where this good news reaches the climax. The good news is that Jesus is all these things, and yet for us we're reminded that he is our reconciler. 
He's the reconciler of humanity to God. Paul closes by saying, "For it, look at verse 19, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross, and you, you and I, us, we were once alienated, isolated, and enemies in our mind by our wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present us holy and blameless. Um, Paul caps off this creed with a climax. This is all who Jesus is, but the best news about it all is that he has made a way for people who are separated from God to be reconciled with God again. How? Only through the veil of his flesh. Only through his body. It's through the body of Jesus that we find reconciliation. As as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, he says that God was in Christ, I love this, reconciling the world to himself. At the end of the day, if you're confused about what Jesus is all about, here's what was going on. If you don't get anything else out of this message today, understand this. Jesus was God's plan through which he would reconcile the world back to himself. Sin has separated us from God. Us wanting our own elbow room and us wanting to be our own head, us wanting to be our own first place, it has caused us to distance ourselves from God. The way Paul says it, we've alienated ourselves from God. Listen, God hasn't run from us, we've run from God. God didn't need to be reconciled to us. We need to be reconciled to God. The idea of reconciliation, this word reconcile, it means to appease someone and regain their favor. God doesn't need to appease you and regain your favor. He loves you. Despite what you think, he hasn't hurt you. He hasn't done wrong to you. The truth of the matter is that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what we need is we need to regain God's favor. We need to appease him. But here's the tough news. We can't do that. What can I do to pay back a God that doesn't need anything from me? What can I do? Even if I do good works to try to get God's attention, how do I get rid of my bad works? How do I wipe away those stains? How can I be reconciled to God? And then Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. He who, nobody, he says, comes to the Father except through me. Paul says Jesus is the reconciler of humanity to God. Jesus is the bridge. His death on the cross, his victory over the grave is a bridge that he paved for you to get back to God. So get to God. The Bible says you call on Jesus. That's all you do. You look to him. You say, Jesus, be my reconciler. Jesus, bring me back to God. Jesus, forgive me of my sin. And the good news is he will hear you and he will respond. This is Jesus. This is good news. Aren't you thankful that this is Jesus? Well, let's do what he's worthy of. Let's uh, respond to who he is right now as we worship.